0: Okay, in Luke 15, there are three consecutive stories that talk about, they're gripping if you read them in succession. They're talking about how God feels about people who are far from Him, uh, people who are separated from Him. It's how God feels about you if you are separated from Him, far from Him in relationship. And all three stories have the same point, they just increase in intensity as you go along. So if you've ever wondered, how does God feel about me, this is how God feels about you. The first story is the story of a lost sheep. You familiar with the story, right? It's a shepherd, he has a hundred sheep, and one day he discovers that one of his sheep has gone missing. Ninety-nine are in place and one is not where he should be. And so the shepherd doesn't say, well, you know, I've got 99, that's pretty good. It's a 1% attrition rate, in the, you know, business, we call that shrinkage, and we go, hey, it's a pretty good day. We lost only one today. He doesn't say that, but he's distraught over the one that is lost, and so he takes the 99 and he stows them away in a safe place, and he goes out searching all night to find this one lost sheep. That's how much it matters to him. That's how God feels. That's how God feels about you if you are far from him, and every person who has not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, coming close to God. It's the first story. The second story is another lost item. This is a lost coin, and there's not one of a hundred now, it's one of ten. And a woman has lost one of ten coins, and we're meant to think this maybe is like a tenth of all she has. And so she is tearing the house apart, seeking out the one lost coin. That's not something you'd do if it was just some spare change, if it was a few pennies, but... If it was something that was truly valuable to you, you would go to, you know, stop at no end to find that lost coin like this woman does. That story is meant to show us how God chases after and how God views those who are lost from him. They're so valuable to our God in heaven. third story is the story of a lost son, and you can see the intensity, 100 to 1, 10 to 1, and now it's a son who was lost. It's the story of the prodigal son. You know the story? Yeah? The son turns his back on his father, he rejects his father, he, he shames him, he dishonors him, he takes his inheritance and he runs away to a far country. And the dad, surprising, shocking thing, instead of disowning his son, instead of building a, a whole ball of anger inside of himself and allowing it to, to cook there and to simmer there and to continue to drive him, instead, he, he comes to the door every day and he stares longing out to the far country, longing that his son would come back to him, Right? And when his son does return in the distance one day, he looks out and he sees, is that my son? And he throws aside all dignity, all all, like maturity, all responsibility, all decorum, and he chases down his son and he grabs him up. And you can imagine him spinning and hugging his son and kissing his son. Why? Because he's overjoyed that the son that was lost to him has now come home. He's returned to him. And in Luke 15, this word lost keeps popping up in all three stories, and you find it all throughout the New Testament to refer to people who are far from God, who do not have saving faith in Jesus Christ, so they are separated from God because of this. They are lost. When a person is lost in the woods or in the city, they have wandered around, and they're not quite sure exactly where they're going, and they're unable to find their way. That means you're lost. And being spiritually lost means that you are going along through your life apart from God, separated from Him, wandering around, trying to figure out who you are and what you're supposed to be doing and what this all is about, and you're unable to find your way to Him and to truth. And in Luke 15, this word lost keeps coming up, and the point is the same in all three stories. Lost people really, really matter to God. You see that in those stories? And I want you to catch the weight of of, of this. In Jesus' words in this story, in Luke 15, starting in verse 4, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? How long? Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus says this I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people. It's not sarcastic, the 99 who don't need to repent. There is more joy. And our Lord over the one lost person returning to Him, then all of the things that we do as the 99. Do you hear that? Do you understand this? That means all that we might do with you, all that we could do to spend our time investing in in, in you will never bring Jesus as much joy as returning the lost one to him, That doesn't mean we don't care about the 99. We do. We love intensely the 99 and we will minister to the 99 and pour our lives out into the 99 that they would know the love of Christ deeper and deeper, further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis said, that you would know him, that you'd live abundantly in him and become like him. But none of that will bring Jesus as much joy as the one lost one being rescued. Do you see that? Jesus said, the son of man, he's talking about himself. The Son of Man has come for this reason, to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. That's the one big thing, the one big thing that we will talk about as a church for the whole month of August from the babies all the way up. We're going to talk about how deeply God loves every person that He has made how deeply He loves them, how His heart pursues every person that He has made, and how when we come to know Him, He gives us a new identity, and not just an identity, but a purpose, a place in His mission. He calls us to live on mission with Him. That's what we're going to talk about for the next Four weeks, if you ever wonder why God hasn't returned yet, why Christ hasn't come back to usher in this incredible thing we read about in Revelation where there's no more sickness, no more pain, no more troubles, what are you waiting on, Jesus? Have you found yourself saying that more lately? I found myself saying that more and more lately. Come, Lord Jesus, come. What are you waiting on? Second Peter 3 tells us, says this, the Lord is not slow, He's not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you. Hear that? He's not slow in returning for no more sickness, no more pain. He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's not slow. He's being patient that more people would be rescued, more lost sheep would be found Matthew 24, 14 says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Lord, come quickly. When the gospel has been preached to the nations, when we, the word of Christ has been declared to the world, that's what he's waiting on. He's patiently waiting for the word to be declared to the nations, to the peoples of your neighborhood, of your workplace, of, of the state, of the country. The world—it's what he's waiting on patiently. And Jesus said to his disciples right before his ascension, some of the most like your last words matter, right? If you know this is the end, your last words matter. Before his earthly ministry ended and ended, and he ascended, he said, "Go, my people, my disciples, go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey." everything that I've commanded you and lo I'm with you always even to the end of the age go do this go make disciples and he said to them in last words before ascending, Acts 1 8 he says you're not going to do this in your power I don't expect you to know how to do this and to have all of the knowledge and all of the skills and and to have perfect character. I don't imagine that you can do all of this on your own. I will be with you. He says, the Holy Spirit who is God will come and will live in you, will live with you and his power will be unleashed through you so that this message of the kingdom, this message of Christ will make it to the ends of the earth. It will happen through you. And as he said to his disciples in the upper room, he said, as the Father sent me for this, I send you for this, to seek and to save that which is lost, not in your strength, but in the strength of, of God the Holy Spirit. Now, you begin to wonder, why don't I do this more, right? I pray, I go to Bible studies, I attend church services pretty regularly, I, I read my Bible, I have a prayer journal occasionally I open, I write some things to your God down, I'm praying for these things, help me out, Lord, could you, could you show me a work here? I am try to align my life, my decisions, my values in line with the will of God as far as I can understand it. We just studied the Ten Commandments. I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm doing my best with the Ten Commandments. It's all good stuff. But why, if this is the big thing, why am I not doing this more, more than I am now? And maybe you are. Maybe you share the gospel all the time. Maybe you tell people constantly about the goodness and the love and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for His people. Maybe you do, and that's fantastic. But more likely, most of us don't, or at least we don't with the intensity and the urgency and the passion that God has for people who are far from Him and that He wants us to have for people who are spiritually lost. So you, you hear all these things, 2 Peter and Matthew 24, and you go, Lord, is it really this simple? You're, you're waiting? You're not coming back to end all the trouble until the message has gone out to the world? Goes, yeah, it's, It's about like that. What are we doing here? What are we playing at if we're not going and telling people about the reality and the love and the truth, the goodness of Jesus? What are we doing? Here's some reasons people don't share the gospel with others. You ever heard the word evangelism? (laughs) It's a scary word. I'm going to give you five reasons people don't share their faith with others. I've said all five of these in different seasons and times throughout my life, some recent and some long ago and some in a revolving way. Likely, you have said some of these things, if not all of them, and they are things that I hear often as a pastor from people. when I say, you should share your faith with somebody. You should tell somebody about Jesus. I hear these things back. I hear, well, pastor, evangelism is just not my gift. I've said this. If you notice in the Great Commission, Jesus didn't say, If you have the spiritual gift of evangelism, then go make disciples of all nations, right? Jesus told all Christians, every one of his disciples as the Father sent me, so I send you, right? You can say it this way, each one is to reach one. You go, each one of us should be reaching somebody. We should be reaching towards somebody with the love of Christ, the message of Christ, each one reach one. I've heard people say this, I don't have time to do evangelism. Right? And you go, well, sure, I know you have time. You're a professional pastor. That's what you do. You're paid to tell people about Jesus. But you don't understand the responsibilities on my back. I have a job where we're not really supposed to talk about Jesus there. And I have all of these things going on. Here's the, the cool thing. The reality is that we're not to carve out time from real life to go and tell people about Jesus We're told as we're going, wherever we're going, whenever we're going, we're just kind of telling people about Jesus as we go. It's not about creating a new bucket in your life. It's the evangelism hour. We're talking about being a people who talk about a saving faith in Jesus, a goodness, a reality of of the love of Christ in our life as we go all the time. And here's, (laughs) here's the big thing I've realized in my own life. I've had to wrestle with this. When I say I don't really have time to do evangelism, what I'm really saying is, It's just not a priority to me. You get that? I've learned that in my life. I've had to catch myself when I go, "Ah, I don't have time here. What I'm really saying is I don't value, I don't have a priority of telling someone about Jesus right now. It's a hard thing to wrestle with. People say this to me. They say, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid. Like I I could start a conversation and who knows what I'm going to say. Here's the good news. You can learn what to say. And in reality, the base of it is so simple. It's about how did the love of Christ come to you? How is he changing your life life day by day? What does it mean that you have Christ with you and you're not alone? Right? Right? Simple stuff. And beyond that, that's what this four weeks are about. We're going to help you. We're going to pour into you. We're going to equip you. We're going to encourage you. We're going to do everything we can to boost your confidence in being able to share the greatest news of the world as it's come to you with people who are around you. It's the one big thing that we're going to try to help with. We're going to help you with this. And so you can't say, I don't know what to say anymore <laughs> when we get to the end of this series. Another thing people say is, I don't know any non-Christians. I don't believe you. I'm not calling you a liar because that would be rude. I just don't believe what you're saying, that's different, you see. I don't believe you unless you live in a commune, but you're here, so you don't. Not all the time, at least. And every day, every day you're surrounded by people passing you who are far from God, who are lost. Who haven't known what it's like to be secure, to be called a child of God, to have peace that passes understanding, to not be alone in this world, but have God himself on your side fighting for you, fighting with you, right? They don't know that. There are people you you work with, people that you live with, there are people at your gym, there are people at the restaurants you go to, there are people in your schools, kids, there are people at your, your, everywhere you go, where you work, live, and play, there are people who are far from God, who are lost, and God desires that they would be found, one more thing, people tell me this. If I tell someone Jesus is the only way of salvation, they might be offended. This one is true. The, the cross can be offensive. And the narrow road may seem narrow-minded at times. But the reality is it is a, an unequivocal biblical truth that can't be compromised. And the truth of the message is not of a harsh, controlling God who demands of His people, but of a patient God who has a a never-ending wealth of grace and love to pour out on a people who turn their back on Him and who chases, who pursues lost people with His love. And the fact is, we were never called to make it stick. We were never called to be God's PR company or His marketing agency. God doesn't need a marketing agency. We were called just to share the gospel, To declare it and to demonstrate it and allow the Holy Spirit to make it stick. That's not our job making it stick. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We just tell people about Jesus. Okay, that's the longest wind up I've ever given into a message, and we're just getting started. So I will move very quickly from here. Grab your Bible, turn to James chapter one, and I promise to move fast. James chapter one, I think this will hit home for a lot of us, especially if we think about what is my place in this world. If I'm a Christian, What is my place in God's mission? What am I to be doing? I think this will hit home for us. For the first 21 verses, James is talking about what real faith looks like, what it looks like when it comes to a person and what it begins to do in a person's life. In verses 19 and 20 and 21, James is concerned that a person may come close to the gospel but not receive it. He is concerned that you might hear the gospel, it might be presented to you, you might become gospel adjacent, but you might not receive it in a life-giving, life-transforming, heart-changing kind of way. I think about um, a friend of mine, dear friend Dennis, who years ago had a failing liver and didn't know if he was going to get a transplant. They said he was, he was so bad off with a number of things going on with uh, arteries that went in and out and, and everything. They, they didn't know if he could have one until they found a doctor in Louisiana who was willing to take him on, and they found a liver for him, and he was taken to New Orleans, and there he had a liver transplant. But the concern by the doctors, by his family, by the friends, and this is true in every organ transplant situation, is will the body receive the organ, Right? You know anyone who's had a transplant, you, you know that's the concern. Will the body receive the organ once it's tied in, once it's put in place, when it's entered the person, will the body receive it or reject it? And if the body rejects it, the body dies. That's how it is with organ transplant. And that's what James is talking about. He's concerned that people may have the gospel come to them and start to get wired in, yet they will reject it. They won't receive it. And then he says this in verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I'm going to move fast. There's one point, kind of. (laughs) There's one big point in this text. And then James, just so that we really fully comprehend the one point, gives us two sub-points, just to expand or to elaborate on the one big point. Not any clever ideas here, just what God says. The first big point, the big point is this. Be doers... If I say doers. doers, be doers of the word. Verse 22, but prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers. James says genuine faith hears, it desires to hear, it's open, ready to receive a word from the Lord, what God says. I'm even eager to hear a word from the Lord, but genuine faith doesn't stop with hearing. Genuine faith takes the next step and begins to respond by doing what God says, or living in response to or in light of what God has revealed. His argument is truly receiving God's Word logically means doing God's Word. And verse 22 is an imperative. It's a command for every Christian. It is to do what God's Word says to do. Now, let's be honest It's okay to be honest in this room about ourselves, and we know this is true, about ourselves, about the church, that we can be notorious for having great worship services and good Bible studies, intellectually stimulating, interesting. We can be notorious for having great life group conversations, even cleaning up our manners a little bit, and yet never actually doing anything in response to the things that we have heard or discussed along the way. And guess what? The secret's out. People know that about us. That can be our story oftentimes. There's a story in an old book by Charles Swindoll. It talks about what it means to, to go through the motions and yet never have radical obedience to what has been commanded. It's a story about a business owner, and he is going to go overseas for a few months to expand his growing company, and he goes to you. And go ahead and put yourself in this story. He goes to you and says, I want you to manage all of the stateside operations while I'm away. I'll be in touch. I'm going to write emails regularly to make sure you know what to do. I'll encourage you. I'll give you instructions so that you'll have no concerns about what you're supposed to be about. I'll I'll be writing to you constantly. You'll know exactly what to do. And so he goes overseas, and for months the emails are coming in, and it's giving you all the promised directions And encouragement. It's giving you a word of of hope and and tells you, this is what should be going on in my absence. And as months pass by, finally the the boss returns stateside, and as he pulls up to the company, he is stunned at what he sees. There is grass and weeds growing up all around the office complex. There are broken windows out front that weren't broken when he left. It looks completely derelict, and he's surprised when he walks in and actually finds people there but it's a wreck. The trash cans are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed. There's stuff stacked in every place. People are wandering around, and no one seems to be at all surprised or impressed or ready for his return, and he walks in the building, and he catches somebody by the arm and says, hey, where are this person? Where is this person? And he's talking about you. Where are they right now? They go, oh, I mean, it's probably, I think they're playing video games down the hall. Just go down that hall, turn right, and that's where they are. They set up a big, t- big screen TV. It's great. They're going to have a lot of fun. And so the boss goes down the hall and finds you and taps you on the arm and says, let's have a talk. He brings you into his office, which has become now a rec room for the staff. It's full of snacks, and, and there's all kinds of you know pizza boxes and stuff stacked around, and you can tell they've had games and had a lot of fun in, in his office while he was gone. And here's how the conversation goes. Boss says... To you, what in the world is going on here? And you say, what do you mean? And he says, look at this place. Did you not get any of my emails? And you say, Yeah, emails, we get your emails, of course we did. As a matter of fact, every Friday we have gathered as a staff and we've been reading through your emails together. I even broke all of the personnel into small groups and they have been studying every little line that you wrote. i got to tell you, boss, you wrote some good stuff in those emails. It's pretty interesting. In fact, you'll be impressed to know a few of us began memorizing lines of some of the emails and a couple of people in the office actually memorized entire emails. (laughs) That's pretty great, isn't it? Great work, boss. I love what you sent us. Thanks for the emails. And the boss says, Okay, you got my emails, you studied them, you meditated on them, you discussed them, you even memorized them, but what did you do about them? Do? I mean, we, we didn't do anything about them. Did you hear we memorized. It was free grade. It was fun. That's the heart of what James is saying in James 1:22. It's exactly What he's saying here, prove yourself to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. And James didn't just come up with this in a moment as he's writing to Christians. James is is really speaking the same kinds of things that Jesus said when he was teaching on earth. He had several times where he said the same kind of thing. Think about these parables, the parable of the talents. Remember this one? The parable of the wedding feast. Remember this one? If you don't know those, Google them. Write them down right now. Go look them up this week. The parable of the talents. And the parable of the wedding feast. And, and hear what Jesus has to say in the same vein of that story. And I want you to hear this. It's in Matthew 7. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. He's taught all of these things. The Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and, what? and acts on them mm-hmm, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, in other words, are merely hearers and not doers, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed into that house, and what happened? It fell, and great was its fall. This is about our lives being lived out as doers of the Word and not being merely hearers of the Word and that when we do the things God calls us to do, we unleash God's power in and through our life to accomplish incredible things and it gives us a steady foundation for a life to be built on. And if we are merely hearers and not people who do, well, all of our life is absent, is void of the power of God being at work through us because we're not working according to His will and purposes for our life. And I want you to notice this. English majors, what part of speech is the word do in this sentence? You want to say verb because the word do it sounds like action, so we, but it's not. You can see it. You can see it right there. It's doers. It is a noun. It is a noun. It's about being people who are doing. It's about people whose faith is activated all the time. They're acting in faith. This is genuine faith. It's not about picking something up and putting something down and being done. It's not about... I did it, and now I'm done. It's not about work without faith. It's about a person. It's about who you are. It's about you're a person who lives doing the things that God has said to do. It's about person being a person whose faith is in action. We want to be like like Peter and John in Acts four before the Sanhedrin, they're brought to him because they're doing good works, miraculous works by the power of the Holy Spirit and they're preaching Jesus to people around them and they are arrested and they are brought in and they are threatened, you better stop talking about Jesus. And they go, I mean, no. And they say, do it or we're gonna, we're gonna, mm." and their response is, we can't help it. We can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. Jesus is alive. (laughs) Haven't you heard? He's alive in us. He's been, oh, so good to us. He's given us new hearts, and those hearts are bursting with life and goodness and joy. And so out of the heart, the mouth do speak. Out of the heart, the life do speak. We can't help but talk about what we've seen and heard. We can't stop. We have to ask ourselves the question, is that true of us? Are we like Peter and John? I can't help but talk about Jesus. (laughs) Am I a doer of the word or only a hearer of the word? Or where does it stop? Are there boundaries? Are there boundaries? I will obey according to what God has said to do so far, but there are boundaries. Like I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. Right? (laughs) Are there boundaries? Are there areas of my life that I have kept back from him? I said, God, I'll, I'll follow you wherever you lead me except for there, because right there is a scary place and I won't go there, wherever there is in your life. Is that true of me? Am I a doer of the word or merely a hearer of the word? Now, verse 22, pick up the end of it. Prove yourself to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. This says merely hearers are Another word, fooling themselves is what that means. If you're merely a hearer, not a doer, you are fooling yourself. When we are people who hear but do not do, we are deluding ourselves. The word literally means we have reckoned wrongly about our faith. You hear that? It means that we have been deceived by false reasoning in our life. How does that work? What does it look like? It looks like attending a worship service, listening to a sermon, reading your Bible, doing a Bible study, giving an offering, doing religious things, and checking a box and saying, I've done the things God's called me to do. I must be great in my faith. I'm a mature Christian now. That's reckoning wrongly. Those are good things to do. But doing those things and not actually changing, not actually transforming, not actually becoming more like Christ, not actually being radically obedient to everything that God has said, that's reckoning wrongly about your faith. Or, or in other words, it's like saying God is pleased with half-hearted spiritual disciplines. Well, you know, I prayed for 15 minutes. I am doing great. Maybe 15 minutes is great. But doing so without saying, God, wherever you lead, I go. Wherever you lead, I go. If you call me to, I will go there. If you say do this, I will do that. Right? Right? It's reckoning wrongly. It's bad logic. It's not the hearing. It's not the hearing that brings blessing. It's the doing that brings blessing. It's the doing in response to the hearing that unleashes God's work in and through your life. So let's not fool ourselves. Think about this. Judas Iscariot. Ever heard of him? Yeah? Okay. Judas Iscariot had the best pastor, the best leader, the best therapist, best counselor, He had the best life group, (laughs) he had the best team, they had the best experiences, firsthand heard the words of Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus, saw the wonders of Jesus firsthand. I don't know if Judas was merely a hearer or merely a doer, but I do know that he fooled himself about his faith. He fooled himself about who he really belonged to. He had deluded himself about what his life was really being lived for. Do you see that? He's fooling himself. And for someone to be that close <laughs> to truth, to life, to grace, to love, to power, and to miss it, it's like this morning you got up, you woke up, you turned off the alarm, you, you went into the bathroom, you looked at the mirror, you saw yourself, and what you saw was a little scary. No offense. I, I'm just talking about my own experience. You went in, and there was maybe some drool kind of dried onto your, your face a little bit, and your hair was this way, and it was that way. And... <laughs> I've noticed this recently, like in the last year or so. Uh, about half of the room will understand this. You wake up and it's like one of your wrinkles has been ironed hard to your face. <laughs> and, and I'm not talking about, you know, you have pillow marks. I'm talking about, like, why is the skin folded so hard? Why won't it pop back what's going on? Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's like you go into the mirror in the morning and you look, and then immediately you go, I'm a mess. But immediately you blink your eyes and you forget and you go off into your day with all the stuff all over you. You'd you'd never do that. And that's what James says, exactly what he says. Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Or in other words, merely hearers are neglectful. That's what James says. They neglect to do anything in response to truth when truth is presented to them right in front of their face. You wouldn't do that when you looked in the mirror this morning. You would do something about what you saw. In fact, would you believe me if I could tell you that I know exactly how long you stood in front of the mirror this morning? Every one of you. You stood there until it got better. And for some of us, it took longer than others because we're working with what we got, but we did something Because when you see something in the mirror, it demands that you do something in response to what you see. Yes? A mirror demands a response, and what James has said is the Word of God is a mirror. He said it's a mirror. It reflects to you the heart of God, the character of God, and it reflects to you what you look like in response to that. It's meant for us to be used. When you look in the mirror, you see yourself as you are. If you look into the mirror of the Word of God and you see that the way you're going, the way you're behaving, the way you're speaking, the direction you're taking, the decisions that you're making are sinful, not leading to life but leading to destruction, what do you do? You see it and you turn the other way as quick as possible. When you look into the Word of God as a mirror and it begins to show you the spiritual gifting God has placed in your life, you go and use the spiritual gifting. When you look into the mirror of God's Word and it tells you how to live in God's power, not your power, you go and live in God's power now, not in your power anymore. The Bible is meant to be used by you as a mirror, to know God and to know yourself, to be more self-aware and spiritually aware of who you are in response to who He is. But it's only good to bring about any good and blessing in your life and through your life when you actually do something about what you see in the mirror. If you look at it and see "Oh, my path is sinful and you just keep going down the path, then nothing good will come. you continue to walk in destruction. If you look at it and say, oh, I see there's a way to live in the power of God. And you go, ah, but that's interesting. And then you go and try to live in your own power. My goodness, you will miss out. You will neglect the potential and the power that God intends for you to have in your life and for others around you to see through your life of faith. To look and walk away is to be neglectful. It's to carelessly disregard what God intends to do in and through your life. And we have to ask ourselves, is there a chance I've been fooling myself about the health of my faith and the truth of my faith? Have I been fooling myself about this? We have to ask, have I been merely a hearer, not a doer? I've seen what's, what's what, but I haven't done anything about it, and so I've been neglecting, I've been abandoning the opportunity to see God work in my life and through my life. I've been abandoning the opportunity for others to see God at work through my life of faith. Have I, have I fooled myself? And have I been neglectful? Now, here's the thing. If you ask yourself that question, there's a good chance, talk about myself again maybe. I'm not talking about you. There's a good chance you'll ask yourself those questions and go, yeah, I think I have been to some degree. I think I've been fooling myself. Things aren't as good as I thought they were, or, yeah, all these missed opportunities I could, oh, Lord, stuck, spiritually stuck. And we might begin to turn on ourselves and and, and feel depressed. But we turn back to Luke 15, and what do we learn? God loves that moment in our life and there's a party in heaven at that moment of realization where you go, I have not been where I should have been with the lost, with all of the other herd of sheep. I've been kind of over here wandering around. There is a party in heaven. There is joy because in that moment of realization you go, I am not where God has called me to be and you turn to him and you cling to him and you want him to guide and to guard your life and to lead you in his will and his way in your life and you want him to do miracles through your life, right? There's a party going on at that moment. So we don't turn to despair. We turn to God and we celebrate in the heavens. This is what we find in verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, it's the law of liberty, by the way, not the law of oppression, who turns and looks intently and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be, somebody say, blessed, Oh, that was weak sauce. Try again. Somebody will be louder. Okay, this person will be blessed in what he does. And I've been alluding to this all along, and James says it so clearly here. Go do your Bible study, go attend your worship services, go to life group and have a meaningful discussion. Open your prayer journal and write to your heart's content memorize Scripture, do those things, they're wonderful, but make sure you get up and you do something about what God says to do, that you have radical obedience in your life so that you might delight in the work of God happening in and through your life each and every day. Go do something about it. Watch His blessings begin to unfold. Watch as you experience God in a, a new and more abundant way than ever before And watch as people around you begin to take notice and go, what is going on with that girl? What is going on with that guy? And they begin to be exposed to the goodness of God through you. So, hearers who are doers will experience blessing. That's the point, right? Hearers who are doers will experience blessing. And this, again, isn't James just going off on his own This is what Jesus said the night that he washed his disciples' feet. He had just told them so much, so much about himself and his purpose, where he was going, what the future would look like. He had told them so much about who they were and what he would be leaving them to do, what their lives were to be about. He knelt down. He he washed their feet, an act of sacrificial love that was a foreshadowing of the cross moment. And then he said these words to them, if you know these things that I've just told you, if you know these things... You are blessed if you do them, is what Jesus said.